0: In a day when leadership is clearly lacking, many wonder, how do you create a culture of excellence? How do you create shared rituals that bring organizations and individuals together? Is there really a way to be positive in terms of capitalism? Is there a way to make more than a dollar and actually make a difference through business? Davis Smith, president and CEO of Cotopaxi, joins us on this week's edition of Therefore What? Therefore What is a weekly podcast that breaks down the news while breaking down barriers, challenges you in the status quo, explores timely topics and timeless principles, and leaves you confident to face what's next. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News, and this is Therefore What. We're very pleased today to be joined by Davis Smith who is the CEO of Cotopaxi an outdoor gear brand with a social mission at its very core which is what we love to hear the most CEO of the year in 2016 uh, named by Silicon Valley Community Foundation is a member of the United Nations Foundation's Global Entrepreneurs Council and a host of other things that are very cool that I'm excited to to talk about Davis thanks for joining us on there for what Yeah it's my pleasure Boyd, great to, great to see you again Good to see you and uh you you have been busy and out there, as always, uh, looking for ways to not only make a dollar, but to really make a difference, which I think is always the challenge. Uh, I don't think it's that hard to make a dollar. I think it's a big challenge to make a big difference and sustain it over time. Uh, give us a little sense of, of just Cotopaxi's mission why is that so central to your success as an organization?
1: Yeah, you know, every, every business is looking for a way to build something different, right? You're looking for, uh, you're trying to identify an, an alpha asset that you have that no one else has or that you can really double down on. And for Cotopaxi, that, that asset is our social mission, uh, and largely because it's so it's so core to who I am. I, uh, and you, we've talked about this before, but I, I grew up in the developing world, and I moved there as a, as a four-year-old, uh, spent a lot of my adult life back in the developing world and always knew I had a responsibility, a duty to find a way to help others. And so this has been a dream uh, of mine forever. And um, kind of putting it into action into a business has been
0: just a lot of fun, and it's been a core reason why the business has worked. So one of the things that I've been thinking about this week, uh, as we get close to to Christmas time, uh, I know you have done a lot in terms of uh, work with refugees, and the thing that always comes to my mind is uh, you you read the the Christmas story, uh, and there's always that passage that I think we we often miss. We kind of rush our way to the nativity uh, where all the good stuff happens, but there's just that little verse that says there was no room for them in the end. Uh, it didn't say there was no room in the end. It said there was no room for them in the end, uh, because I'm, I'm certain if they had enough money or if they had the right status or if they were from the right town, uh, there would have been room. There's always room. I mean, you, you go to the Olympics, you go to the final four, uh, and they say everything so that there's always room. But you've chosen to to focus and help those refugees that again there's there doesn't seem to be room for them. Uh, tell us what you're doing to make room for them.
1: Yeah, so when I when I moved to the U.S. five years ago, I was living in Brazil. Uh, within the first month of being here, one of my buddies invited me to a, a Christmas event. It was around this time of the year, mm. mid December, and it was around refugees. And to be honest, I'm kind of embarrassed to say, Boyd, like I literally did not know much about refugees at all. Yeah. Uh, growing up in Latin America, like the places I lived, just didn't really have refugees in this sense. And at this event, I was just touched to the core by their stories. And uh, I knew I needed to to somehow weave them and their stories into our business. And um, I used to, when we first launched, I'd write these handwritten thank you cards uh, to, to our customers saying, thank you for placing an order. Yeah. That didn't last very long, <laughs> to be honest. you know, I, I, It didn't scale. Uh, but I, I instantly started looking for another opportunity. I wanted to create that personal touch. And so mm-hmm. One of our team members knew how passionate I was about refugees and said, why don't we see if we can get some of these amazing refugees that have just been resettled to write cards and it can be their job. And I love the idea, the idea of giving these refugees their very first job right when they're resettled. um, Their first duty is to actually pay back the U.S. government for their flights. They're in debt. The moment they arrive in the United States, they have to pay back the government for flights. And so... They need to start working. And a lot of them don't know the language. They're trying to figure out this new country. And so we created this this great program in partnership with the IRC, the International Rescue Committee. Mm. And uh, we created this job club where these refugees, we've had over 100 refugees go through this program. They write the thank you card in their native language since they're still learning English. Right. And, uh, you know, it's one of the ways we've we've been able to work with refugees. We've done a a number of other really cool programs. We just actually in the the last few weeks had some uh, wonderful uh, girl refugees that came and spent, uh, we're doing some mentoring group with them, and they spent a day in our office meeting all the different teams and trying to understand what these different career paths were. And um, there was a, a refugee, a Rohingya refugee from Myanmar that was there. And she said, so do you mean that I could start my own business? And it was like, yes, <laughs> yes, of, of course yes. you can start your own business. And so for her, that was just like so – like just the idea that she could actually start something of her own was just something she never
0: even dreamed of. So yeah. it's it's really fun. I think so often we, we look at things like uh, – how the U.S. in particular interacts with the rest of the world. Uh, and often we, we think of it in terms of, of giving dollars for for programs or for, star, you know, starving kids in Africa or whatever it may be. Uh, and yet, really, it's that, that entrepreneurial spark that you just described that is really the way if, if you really want to promote democracy and liberty and freedom around the world – uh, it's not going to be through a government program. It's really going to be through entrepreneurship and learning, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. I mean, this is something I, I believe to
1: the core. If you, if you actually look back 200 years, uh, 1820, in the year 1820, uh, 94% of the world Lived in poverty. When I was born in 1978, it was 40% of the world lived in extreme poverty, less than a dollar ninety a day, the equivalent mm. of today's dollar ninety. When I w- when I finished high school, it was 20%. Uh, last year, it was 9%. We are eradicating extreme poverty. And this is largely due to capitalism. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's the idea of opening up markets and empowering people to actually be in control of their own destiny instead of government. Um, of course, there's, there's imperfections with capitalism. Sure. Um, it can be very destructive to the planet, to the environment. And so we need to, there need to be protections there. But uh, I, I agree. I mean, entrepreneurship and, uh, you know, it's something that lifts you. I, one of my, actually, one of my favorite quotes is by Dieter Ruchdorf. He says, the desire to create is one of the deepest yearnings of the humans. Soul. I believe this. I believe every human inside of us, we have this desire to create, to build something that didn't exist before. It might be music. It might be art. It might be cooking. It might be a business. But it's taking something that didn't exist and with our own
0: dreams, our own ambition, going and creating it. Yeah. And, and everyone does have that desire. Uh, and being able to, to provide those opportunities is, is such, a, such a critical part of this whole thing. You mentioned in there the, the balance with capitalism uh, and the environment and the, the planet as a whole. Uh, I know you've had some unique experiences that uh, have have influenced your perception in terms of what is really happening uh, with the planet and whether that's with plastics or or whatever it may be. Share a little bit of that for us.
1: Yeah. So uh – I'm an outdoorsman. I, I love the outdoors, and uh, of course, that makes me care about the environment. I'm, I'm also a Mormon, and that also makes me care a lot about the earth and protecting it. Yeah. And I, I love doing survival trips. I'm—I uh, think we've maybe even talked a little bit about this in the past, but I, you know, I, I love going to a place and bringing just a few things. I bring a machete, I bring a mask uh, and fins, and I bring a spear, and I'll go survive for five days on coconuts and fish that I spear <laughs> and stuff. So it's—it's uh, it's weird. I don't know. I'd why I like it, but I do. So uh, I do this maybe a couple times a year. And I, um, earlier this year, uh, I was in a part of Mexico, a very remote part of Mexico, no people anywhere, um, hours away from people. There's no boats in sight, nothing, just mm-hmm. me in the ocean. And uh, when I got to this little remote beach, um, there's no signs of humans anywhere except plastic. And there's plastic everywhere. For a hundred miles on this beach, and this wasn 't plastic that was dumped there by people in trucks or something this was This was plastic that washed up from the ocean Wow, and uh, it was flip flops toothbrushes plastic bottles bottle caps and some of this was actually brands uh u.s brands, US brands. <laughs> and it was like oh my gosh like it is just so sad to see like what we're doing to this planet and these plastics they never go away I mean, every piece of plastic that's ever been made by humans still exists on the planet and so uh that for me was a shocking moment and i wouldn't say i am a crazy environmentalist, I'm not. I, and, but this moment did change me. I, yeah. um, whenever I use plastics, a, a plastic water bottle or these single use plastics, were like cutlery, at a, you know, when you're at a restaurant or on an airplane, it pains me because it's like this is this. I know this. I know where this is I know going to go. So uh, it's something that uh, I'm not sure what the solution is. Other than we all need to be aware and we need to look for opportunities to do to do better.
0: Yeah, and and I love the fact that you you pointed out that this is not about any extreme position, no. one way or. The other, it's no. about stewardship, isn't it? Exactly, and and this isn't
1: right or left, right? Yeah, um, this is something that that people are united on that we we yeah. do care about our planet, and we should be we should be wise in the way that we use the resources of our planet.
0: So, I want to shift gears a little bit um, and talk just from a, a business perspective. Uh, one of the the big things that you're known for at Cotopaxi is just this thriving culture uh, within your organization. And I'm one of those guys who believes that that, that culture uh, just trumps everything else in the end. It eats strategy for breakfast. It uh, you know overcomes opportunity or capital or anything else. Uh, so describe your vision of the culture within Cotopaxi. How do you develop it? How do you sustain it, especially when you're succeeding?
1: Yeah. So I had an interesting uh, situation. This is probably a year and a half ago. Uh, We were lucky enough to be named uh, by the Deseret News as the number one place to work in Utah. Mm -hmm. I was proud, you know. As you should be. (laughs) Yeah, of all the the awards you could ever get as an entrepreneur, that's the best. Yeah. That you've created a place for other people to love coming to work every day. Mm -hmm. And uh, about a month or two after that, uh, one of our early employees came and talked to me. And she said, hey, uh, I just wanted to come talk to you. And. You know, things just aren't the way they used to be, and uh, it's not the same place. And, uh, you know, she wasn't happy as happy as she was early. And my first instinct was to be like, did you not see that we were named the number one place to work? Uh, but in reality, you know, it, it was a wake-up call because I realized this isn't something that you just build and then it's done. Like yeah. culture is something that you have to work on every day, and I literally work on it every day. Every day, I have a tool actually that I use to measure our culture internally and what's mm. h- how it's moving. And I can I can actually I can I can actually analyze this data by gender. I can analyze it by tenure in the company, how long or how short you've been there. So if I see that there's a trend where like maybe the newer employees are loving it more and like the older Employees maybe aren't. It's like, okay, what do I need to do different? What yeah. what have we changed? Um, I can do it by department, so it's all. I can't see an individual's feedback, but I can kind of understand the the general trends in the business. And so this is something I, me- I measure daily, and it's frankly, it's the most important job I have as a CEO. I need to create a place where people want to come to work every day, where we can attract and retain the best talent. Yeah. And so uh, it's, it's something that matters deeply to me, and it's something that I I, I really learned um, by through mistakes in my mm-hmm. previous businesses, and I've I've worked hard in this business from the very, very beginning to find ways to build traditions and rituals around these core values that we identified very early in the business. Mm, I love
0: that. Uh, I want to ask you, because you, you hinted at this, that uh, it, it's not something that you just do and check off the list as, as a CEO. It's a, it's an ongoing thing. Uh, I've always said that the most dangerous day in the life of an organization, any organization, business or, or otherwise, is the day you're successful. It's the day you, you get the accolades in the paper. It's the day you, you hit number one. Because it's so easy to, to rest on your laurels or to get comfortable. And usually the first thing that goes is the culture. So what do you do uh, in addition to, to monitoring, uh, which very few leaders today do? They, you know, they'll look at the spreadsheets. You know, what's the balance sheet? Yeah. Uh, they'll look at inventory. Uh, they'll look at a few customer satisfaction surveys. Uh, but very few are, are looking at how do I measure the culture and then what do I do about that to sustain that level of excellence over time?
1: Yeah, so, again, I think what this goes back to is uh, it, this has to be done by design, mm-hmm. not by default. Yeah. Um, culture, you'll have culture no matter what. Uh, and you can either, you can just let it happen, uh, or you can actually create it. Yeah. And uh, it'll evolve over time, which is why you it's so important to have these core values. So yeah. things can change, but they're, they're always going to rotate around those, those key pillars. Right. And so, um, you know, with this business, the first thing we did when, with my founding team when I had this idea for the business, I flew in from Brazil other people came and we met in a cabin here in Utah. Some people had never even been to Utah before. We sat down and we talked about what these core values would be. I painted this vision for the type of business and brand I wanted to build, the type of culture. And we didn't talk about our product or our go-to-market strategy. We talked about these core values. And then we built traditions and rituals around those that we try to reinforce. And that means coming back to them constantly and saying, how are we doing with this? You know, do we need to do a better job of incorporating like, people as one of our core values? Yeah. Are, we, are we focused uh, enough on our own team, and are we thinking about them? Like, okay, we just when you first start, you might not have to even think about, hey, what am I going to do with maternity leave? Right. And uh, then all of a sudden, you have a situation where it's like, oh, it's time to think we about a it. policy. We, yeah, <laughs> we need to create a policy around this. And and how do we build a policy that's going to be as generous as possible, but also that's going to keep in mind that we're a business and we yeah. you know we, we have to operate. So you know, it's it's constantly going back to those values, but. Uh, it's not just putting them on the wall. Yeah. It's truly about in integrating those values into every aspect of of the business and the culture.
0: Good. One last thing I want to hit on this culture piece uh, because you mentioned it twice, and it's it's something that I think is, is vital to any living, breathing, growing, improving organization. And that is rituals. Tell us more. What that? What does that mean in the kotopaxi world?
1: Yeah. So uh, rituals are things that uh, are immovable, and and I say that because it's really easy to say. Uh, it's really convenient sometimes to say, okay, I know we've done this for you know we've done this, but you know there's some reason why we can't do it anymore. For example, this is just a, a, maybe not even the best example, but we have what we call an all hands meeting uh, that we call Academia kotopaxi You know, and it's about learning and developing people. And so every other Friday morning we. Get Together as a team, and uh, we discuss. Uh, we kind of do an all, all hands where everyone's kind of giving quick updates, and then we have a learning session where we teach anything from negotiation skills. Like, I, I had this great class at Wharton where we uh, where I kind of use that framework, uh, we, we taught this this framework to our team, and then we the next you know in a couple of weeks we're actually doing a, a workshop with this professor from Wharton that's oh, wow. going to kind of work us through a, a negotiation scenario. So it's it's creating these these traditions that are that are happening, rituals that are happening, and there have been times where it's like, hey, it's just really busy. Why don't we just skip academia this this next time? It's like never. We will never skip it uh, because uh, you you if you ever do, it just becomes that much easier to not do it in the future, and it's yeah. hard. And uh, but. But, uh, you know, and I'd say the same rule applies to any organization, not just business. And so, uh, and I think of my family, you can either develop your, your family's culture by design or by default. And yeah. I for a long time, mine was done by default. And yeah. I had to sit down with my wife and we had to th- sit down and decide what are the, f- the values that we represent and how do we make sure our kids understand what those are and how do we build rituals and traditions around these core values in our
0: own family? And it's yeah. been transformational for us. Yeah, absolutely. I, I always joke, we had one of our shared rituals uh, in my family, family of 11 kids, wow. uh, was every Saturday night, five o'clock, uh, we all were expected to be at home uh, and we would sit around the counter and we had like the mother of all Kitchen. I mean, it was almost like a cafe counter, and we'd all sit around, and my dad would make pancakes. I love that. And that was the ritual. And, and I don't know if you've had pancakes in a large group before. Uh, they I come from a family of eight. So, oh, so yeah. yeah, you get yeah, do know. Not 11, you, but you, yeah. yeah. You, you know they don't come in stacks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, one one, one yeah, at a time, yeah. about 10 minutes apart. <laughs> yeah. uh, but yet that ritual became so important because it was during that long process of waiting for the next round of pancakes to come that my parents were asking important questions. They were listening. They were sharing insight. And it was one of those rituals that just, it, it was immovable and that shared. Ritual became the substance, really, uh, to to move things forward. I love that! What a great example. So, I, I want to look now uh, at another component to leadership. Uh, you've been involved over the past year uh, with a, a very interesting group uh, of leaders from around the country, young young executives, uh, and you've had a very interesting perspective from, from two presidents, uh, past presidents of the United States, between George Bush. Uh, and Bill Clinton. Tell us a little bit about that experience, and what did you learn in that, that process?
1: Yeah, so uh, a number of years ago, Bill Clinton and George W. Bush decided to, to work together to create a leadership program, and they called it the Presidential Leadership Scholars. So there's about 60 people that are admitted to this program once a year, and you go spend time studying presidents, and uh, including those two, but also G- George H. W. Bush. I had yeah. an opportunity to meet him and Barbara earlier this year, uh, shortly before she passed, and then, wow. of course, he's passed now. Just an amazing experience, to, an ex- amazing experience to be that close to, to a president. Uh, and, you know, when I moved to the United States as a teenager, um, I never would have imagined that I'd be able to meet Bill Clinton yeah. in person. And, and then, of course, later on, George W. Bush and George H. W. Bush. And what I, what I, I think my biggest takeaway from these three presidents, one thing that they all shared in common, because they're all very different people, yeah. um, different, different values and, and different uh, perspectives, but all of them care deeply about people. Mm-hmm. Um, you you know, George H.W. Bush, since he's recently passed, I, I'll just say, like, he was probably the finest man, yeah. person to ever be president of the United States. Yeah, He never wanted it to be about him. It was always about celebrating the success of others. Yeah. If something good happened, he would always push the praise to someone else. And if something bad happened, he would take the hit himself. And that's just rare. We just yeah. don't see that very often, especially today. And yeah. it was, you know, that was, it was someone that I think all of us just admire deeply, regardless of our political affiliation. Right. And this group is a mix of people from the right and the left and in the middle. That's the best. And yeah. <laughs> and you know, and one beautiful thing too, is we got to understand these different people and we learned, we learn to love them. This mm-hmm. group, we're like family. I mean, we communicate every day. There's probably a hundred to 200 text messages daily that are happening. It's almost I a little, that. yeah, it's really cool. In fact, to, after our talk tonight, I'm actually, one of is here in Utah. We're going to go get together tonight so it's a very very close group but we are every spectrum of of the political Mm -hmm. spectrum we're we're on this little uh on on, anywhere on there right and so uh you know there's one person that uh one of the most brilliant people in our group that was uh, very supportive of Donald Trump, and other people on the other side were just like, "How? How can, how can that? that <laughs> how can that even be possible?" And uh, you know, but as we kind of share our different perspectives, and all of a sudden, people are like, "Oh, I understand where you're coming from," and even though I don't agree with you on all these issues, I respect you deeply as a person, and I understand now how a, how a person can support someone and maybe uh, maybe not
0: necessarily agree in everything yeah. but that they can be a good person still because sometimes we we demonize the other side. You know I, one of the things that we're tracking here at the Deseret News and uh, we have an event coming up in January with uh, Bob Woodward and, and Elder yeah. D. Todd Christofferson uh, from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints talking about integrity and trust today and uh, in, our, in our meetings today we were discussing that m- many people around the country complain about the inability to compromise and come together. And one of the interesting things that came out is that in order for that to happen, if I'm going to compromise with you on something that has to be based on my trust in your integrity, that you will do what you say you're going to do as part of this negotiation. Uh, In in your leadership, both in terms of your experience with the the presidential folks, uh, but also in terms of of business, how have you seen integrity and, and trust come into play? How has it impacted your business? How has it impacted you as a person?
1: Yeah, I would say maybe, for me, one of the best examples is my relationship with my business partner at Cotopaxi. Mm -hmm. Uh, I met my business partner uh, in business school. So we were both at the Wharton School together. Uh, He's from Germany, from Munich, and moved to the U.S. with his wife. And uh, we just we instantly hit it off. We both uh, had you know some shared passions and similar. He'd been the German Special Forces, loved the outdoors, and um, had traveled a lot. Had been involved in a lot of nonprofit work, and so and was an entrepreneur. And so we really just hit it off. And uh, you know we come from two different worlds and two different uh, you know religious perspectives. And um, but in the five years we've been working together, we've never had a single argument and it's not because we see everything perfectly eye to eye we sometimes yeah. see things differently in the business but there's just a mutual level of trust and love and respect for each other yeah. where i never would say if you see something differently oh it, you know it, it's because you've comp- you're compromised in right. some way or you just don't you don't see this right or it's like okay i respect him so much that i'm going to try to understand where he's coming from because mm-hmm. there must be a reason he's seeing this differently yeah. than me and that but that takes time too and it, and it That's takes right. a little bit of faith in someone else you know, to- yeah, and a
0: lot of mutual tolerance, right? <laughs>
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: <laughs> All right, as we come down the, the home stretch today, uh, a couple of questions for you. One, I have a, uh, a baseball collection, uh, which we talk about on this show pretty regularly. Uh, but the most important autographs that I have on baseballs uh, are not famous baseball players. They're, they're people who have made a difference in my life. So teachers, bosses, coaches, authors. Uh, so if you were starting uh, your version of a wall of fame, uh, g- give me the first person. What's the first autograph you would go get? <laughs> who, who's one of those high impact people for you?
1: Okay, that's fun. Uh, yeah, actually, before I even answer, because I know who it is, but uh, I just a little side fun comment. Dale Murphy. I I, I love Dale Murphy. Uh, you know, I grew up you know in the in yeah. the Caribbean playing baseball. Dale Murphy sent these ball, signed, signed balls to my entire team. And uh, and wow. I still have this ball. It says, best wishes, Dale Murphy. And he reached out recently. He's going to come to our office at Cotopaxi in a couple weeks that's and fantastic. spend time with us. And we're, I have balls <laughs> for our teams that he's going to sign. So oh, this is it. like very relevant. I love it. But the person I would choose that's not a baseball player would be a man named Steve Gibson. Um, this is a, a mentor of mine. I read about him actually in a church news article when I was just back from my, from my mission. And it was about uh, he was an entrepreneur. He had sold his business. He was probably around 60 years old. He had you know, the next 30 years of his life to just go enjoy on a beach if he wanted. Yeah. And instead, he and his wife went and they moved to the Philippines. And they opened up a school teaching entrepreneurship to poor Filipino return missionaries, wow. teaching them how to get on their feet. And it was so inspiring to me. I cut out this article. I carried it around school for for three and a half years at BYU. And the front cover of my clear face binder. I was just, he, I idolized this guy. I mean, he was just so inspiring to me. Not because he was, he'd done, he'd, was wealthy or he was a great entrepreneur. I didn't even... Think about entrepreneurship at that point in my life. It was really just about this man had identified some talents that he had, and he used those talents to lift others. And so, um, fast forward, I was finishing school. I actually ran into him. I saw him getting into an elevator on campus. I oh ran gosh. into this elevator right as it was closing. <laughs> he was trapped. He had to talk to me, and uh, you know, he's. Uh, he was my inspiration to become an entrepreneur. He encouraged me to go do something. He told me that he saw something in me um, that I could become an entrepreneur. I now learned he tells everyone that, so I wasn't really <laughs> special. But uh, but he made me see, you know, yeah. he made me go pursue something that uh, that uh, he maybe saw in me. And so uh, he's become a great mentor of mine. I still get together with him frequently. And so Steve Gibson would be my signature on my ball. All right, I love that. I'm going to give you a ball to have him go sign
0: for you. Oh, that's a great <laughs> idea. I love that. Therefore, what? Davis, as we as we come down the home stretch here, the last segment of this show is therefore what, uh, because it always comes down to what do we do about it, what do we change, what's different. Uh, so, for our listeners today, they've been listening for the last twenty five minutes. Uh, what do you hope their therefore what is? What do you hope they come away from? Uh, what do you hope they do differently or think differently or apply differently mm-hmm. than they did before they started listening today? You know, I think my my biggest
1: hope, uh, I feel so lucky to be here. All of us are so lucky. I mean, we could have been born somewhere else and our lives would be completely different. Mm-hmm. We're, not, we're not here because we're special or because we're more deserving or we're harder working. We just, we really were blessed and lucky. And, um, I, uh, I can't help but think every single day that we have a responsibility, every one of us, to look beyond ourselves. And so um, my hope would be that, um, it's hard sometimes to do that, right? But I, my hope would be in this holiday season that we would all do that. I, my, I was, uh, in 1997, I was a, a, a missionary for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I was in Bolivia. I was in a really remote part of the country. It took several days to get there. And uh, I talked to my family for the first time in my mission. And I was so excited to talk to them. I, the phone call finished, and I just felt depressed. It was like, here I am in the middle of nowhere. I don't get to be with my family. And I started feeling sorry for myself. And that afternoon, um, some of the other missionaries had organized for us to go to an orphanage. And we went and spent the rest of the day, Christmas Day, with these orphans. And I'll tell you what, those feelings of self-pity disappeared pretty quickly. And uh, I'll never forget that Christmas. It was the best Christmas I ever had. And um, I hope that this Christmas season we can, all remember that, that we can look for what really matters and look for ways that we can get beyond ourselves.
0: Fantastic. Davis Smith, CEO of Codopaxi, social entrepreneur, and one of the most authentic leaders uh, I know. Great lessons. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Boyd. Remember, after the story is told, after the principle is presented, after the discussion and debate have been had, the question for all of us is, therefore what? Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you're listening today. And be sure to rate this episode and leave us a review. Follow us on DeseretNews.com slash podcast and subscribe to our newsletter. This is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News. Thanks for engaging with us on Therefore What?